Welcome, this is Poetry on the Move. In this episode, the panel The Texture of Truth, recorded at the Poetry on the Move Festival, held in Canberra in 2019. John Berryman writes, A poet's job is not to play fast and loose with the facts of this world. Or is it? Can poetry be true? And what kind of truth, if any, does it reveal? Does poetry merely represent the world? Or is it a way of knowing the world, a form of knowledge in itself? Our first speaker is Louise Crisp. Louise Crisp is an Australian poet, essayist and environmental activist based in East Gippsland. Her work focuses on specific regional environments, particularly in southeastern Australia. Louise's poetry collection Pearl and Seafed was shortlisted for the New South Wales Kenneth Slesser Poetry Prize. Her latest collection is Uquimbiang. Louise begins by talking about the source of the title of her book. Pronunciations of the source word, I do not know its meaning, um, became the word that became Yukumbin River. However, that ambiguity, um, Yukumbiang, Yuikumbiang, Yukimbiang, Yukimbiang, that ambiguity, that lack of a definite truth is the point here. That mishearing is emblematic of the colonial enterprise on the Monero. This book's mainly a connection of long-form texts, which actually um, I felt eluded or escaped the question we had posed to us originally, <laughs> um, which is, um, does poetry merely represent the world or is it not a way of knowing the world or a form of knowledge in itself? Um, it is actually this slow-ending way that does elude, elude um, uh, encapsulation, um, is a way of enacting a way of knowing in the land, a way of knowing specific places and localities, for me particularly of the snowy Monero and Gippsland. Um, it's a long series of poems, a number of them, deliberate wandering, purposeful errantry, a poetics of the local approach from various directions and times at once, both movement and palimpsest. I see poetics as a way of speaking to the land, first and foremost. Ross Gibson, in a review of Emma Lou's latest collection, talked about a cone of silence. And for a writer in East Gippsland, that cone of silence extends right to the fringes. <laughs> um, so I think that the dialogue that is un being undertaken with the writing is actually a dialogue to the place that I'm in. Um, it's also um, a way of acknowledging the often overlooked, the seemingly insignificant, but to recognise the aliveness of the land, attention to non-human others as a form of ethical action, as Val Plumwood has said. However, I don't think that the poetics, for me, um, are ethical in their own. They require action. It actually calls up responsibility. It doesn't function outside action for me. In other words, activism. Rather, the two are interconnected, mutually reinforcing. The writing in Yukumbiang evolved out of my long engagement with Snowy River issues, particularly the restoration of environmental flows, as well as other environmental issues in East Gippsland. 
I feel a compulsion to be as accurate as possible to the specific ecology of the locale. Not to do so would feel like a betrayal of the responsibility I feel to places I have walked among so extensively and places with which I have become so intimate. I was going to read a couple of long poems, but as I said, they're all long. Um, so I'll just touch on the first one, Yam, which is between abundance and anguish. Um, it has an epigraph from anthropologist Josephine Flood's The Moth Hunters, which was written in 1980. She looked at a land that had been battered by 150 years of um, damage by European graziers that was founded on the dispossession and attempted removal of Narigo custodians who had created and nurtured an incredible abundance in that land. The anthropologists couldn't recognise the sign remnants of the original grasslands that are secreted about the place, hints of the abundance of flowering food plants and fauna that once existed right across the Monero. Instead, Flood proposed that Ngarigu were only summer visitors for Bogong moss, a seasonal version of Terra Nullius. Um, so I'll read some of this, but I'll skim to the end so I don't take up too much time. Okay. Yam. And I must mention, yam refers to Microceros lanceolata, the yam daisy, which has a number of names, um, Murnyong, Murnong in the southwest of Victoria, um, Miwang, uh, uh, Gangek, Nyaman. Um, but it also refers to yam in a broader sense, that there was such an incredible density of food plants that people had, Ngarigu people had an incredible abundance just before their feed. Yam. The tablelands of the Monero were not an environment rich in food resources. Josephine Flood, 1980. And I must say there's interspersed in this quotes from observations of colonial travellers. Around the undulating land of the Manaru, chocolate lily, nodding purple chocolate lily, yellow bulbine lily, pale vanilla lily, tubers, small vanilla lily, blue grass lily, creamy milkmaids, yellow star, tiny star, yellow rush lily, twining fringe lily, common fringe lily, early nancy, golden moth orchid, valleys carpeted with flowers and rich grass, mountain golden moth, purple diurus, leopard orchid, tubers, tiger orchid, parsons bands, slender onion orchid, common onion orchid, midget greenhood, Dwarf greenhood, 800 tubers per square metre, pink bindiweed, dotted sun orchid, slender sun orchid. And it goes on. <laughs> um, walk into Round Plain travelling stock reserve after spring rains. A swathe of yellow, purple, white flowers, edible lilies, orchids, a tiny remnant of the plains and open forest. Once covered with grass so luxuriant, flocks of kangaroos quietly grazing, the emu crossing and recrossing. Then it goes on through the birds and the water, the water plants and the fauna. Um, and I'll come down to some of the end of the uh, wildfowl. Black swan, mountain freckled black, pink-eared, blue-billed, wood musk duck, hard-head shoveler, grey and chestnut, teal, molting water birds are unable to fly. Long-necked turtle, yabby, spiny crayfish, blackfish, eels, chupong, galaxiger, long-nosed bandicoot, brown bandicoot, koala, paddy melon, big fat kangaroo rat, 
Potterua Betong, Jimang Buan, Wombat, Echidna, Rock Wallaby, Swamp, Sugar Glider, Ringtail Possum, Brushtail Possum, Tiger and Eastern Quoll, and Moss in high summer rocks above the flourishing plains, flicker in dream, song, wind. Um, so what I was trying in there, rather than actually representing the land as a narrative, um, and I'm very interested in Maria Termakin's, um comments on narrative as subsuming everything. It distorts things and dilutes things and produces grievous falsehoods. It is especially dangerous when dealing with situations of trauma or loss. Um, there was also, there's also a way that, um, not in this collection, because unfortunately by the time Kent and I had edited it down to the size it is now, there were some, um, um, <laughs> Um, compromises I had to make um, but if you put the poem actually on its side it waves the right margin waves like the land of the Monero a topographical specificity as John Ryan's refers to some of Harriet Tala's um, collection um, where am I um, yes um, so a lot of what I'm trying to do in the work is actually layering um, of the archival, the historical, the ecological sources, voices that are quoted from overheard um, conversations and field observations to actually create a palimpsest of the land's obliteration. Such is the violence that is ongoing in the land as that was initiated at that rupture of invasion. I came across a quote from Deleuze and Gautari's Thousand Plateau. Writing has nothing to do with meaning. It has to do with land surveying and cartography, including the mapping of countries yet to come. Cartography, mapping, new countries, sounds like the trajectory of colonization on the Monero. Land surveyor Stuart Ryrie in 1840, Jauncey and Campbell Kaluis, 1834, squatters out looking for land to possess, Terra Nullius, Aquanullius, Buckley's Lake, Washout Briar Gulch, an echo in the poems bouncing back from Galtari to Jauncey, new countries indeed. Jessica Wilkinson is the founding editor of Rabbit, a journal for non-fiction poetry. She has published two poetic biographies, Marionette, a biography of Miss Marion Davies, shortlisted for the 2014 Kenneth Lesser Prize, and a suite for Percy Granger. Her third, on choreographer George Balanchine, Music Made Visible, was published in 2019. Thank you, um, Cassandra, and thank you um, to the festival organisers um, for inviting me to be here. Um, I do think this is... Uh, I agree. This is um, one of my favourite um, events to go to and I just think you're all a lovely bunch of people. <laughs> and, um, and of course, also, um, before I start, just um, I would also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land um, and also uh, the land that I grew up on um, uh, and the traditional owners, the Wathorong people of the Kulin Nation, 
um, out near Ballarat. Um, and now I, uh, as it turns out, I live there again. And this is where I, I wrote this book. Um, and that land is, is really meaningful to me and has been for a long time. And um, so more and more I'm, I'm becoming um, interested in, I guess, the, the personal impact um, and being responsible for my, the impact that I have on the land. Um, and um, as academics, I, I think we should all um, think about um, the impact that we have um, on this land. So... I just have three quotes um, that um, that are, are particularly kind of relevant and interesting and um, I come back to them again and again. The first um, is from Cole Swenson who wrote a book called Noise, um, uh, Noise That Stays Noise and there's a chapter in that called, called News That Stays News. Um, from a, a Ezra Pound quote where he said that, that poetry is news that stays news. Um, and it's a fabulous essay uh, if you're interested in documentary poetry. Um, and she says, why present documentary work in poetic form? Because poetry, amid all its ambiguity and ornamentation, is not only perfectly capable of conveying truth, it can also attain a unique relationship to truth because it implicitly acknowledges and interrogates the limitations of language. The truth of a human situation can't fit into language, contrary to the tacit assumption of journalism, because human truth surpasses fact. However, through interstices opened up by figurative language, ambiguity, juxtaposition, sound relationships and rhythmic patterns, room can be made for those aspects of truth that can't be articulated. Again and again, I come back um, to that quote and I find myself quoting Swenson all the time in, in papers. A second quote is from Matthew um, Zapruda from his book, Why Poetry, which I personally think is much better than um, Ben Lerner's book, The Hatred of Poetry. Um, interestingly enough, they use a lot of the same uh, poetry examples, but um, Zapruder's book comes from a place of love, and I think that's so important. He says, um, a poem literally makes a space to move through. So that's it from Zapruder. And then um, the third quote is from Anne Carson, uh, and I, I, I didn't have the bit that precedes this. Some people think that, I forget what that was, um, <laughs> means the poet takes a snapshot of an event and on the page you have a perfect record, but I don't think that's right. I think a poem, when it works, is an action of the mind captured on a page and the reader, when he or she engages it, has to enter into that action. The mind repeats that action and travels again through the action, but it is a movement of yourself through a thought through an activity of thinking. So by the time you get to the end, you're different, different than you were at the beginning and you feel that difference. So they're the, the three quotes that I feel um, really speak to what I try to do in my poetry work. And um, so this, this book um, on George Balanchine 
it's a poetic biography of, of Balanchine, who was a, a um, choreographer. He was born in um, St. Petersburg, um, defected in 1924 with a, a small troupe of dancers, ended up um, working for Serge Diaghilev and the Ballet Russe. Um, he kind of fiddled around Europe for a while and then um, ended up in America where he co-founded the New York City Ballet um, with a philanthropist, Lincoln Kirstein, um, and the School of American Ballet. And he's really sort of responsible, for better or worse, for the, the kind of contemporary um, dancer image that we have. Um, and, uh, and he really kind of established um, neoclassical dance um, in America. So what, what am I trying to do? Um, so this book was about six years in the making, including two relatively large research trips. Um, some were site-based around Europe, but uh, most of the time was spent in New York City in the public library, the dance division at um, Lincoln Center, uh, where there's a substantial, uh, particularly the video archives of all his, his ballets. It's hard to access a lot of them because they're very protective of copyright. Um, and at Harvard, um, George Balanchine's papers were sold there um, after his death. Um, and after the first research trip, I got home and um, for the next few years, I was just trying to figure out, because um, what interests me about, about poetry and colliding with nonfiction and, and biography, I'm just really interested in how... Um, character can be conveyed through the form and what might um, be the most appropriate form for that particular character. Um, and this idea that uh, conventional biographies um, from a structural perspective are essentially the same book. Um, so how can we, I guess, pay tribute to the particularities of singular characters um, through uh, the formal characteristics working with the content so that's essentially what I'm trying to do. Anyway, it became apparent to me, going through all these copious notes, that um, Balanchine was a very difficult person to know. Um, and his five wives all said that. <laughs> and, um, and that the most we could know about him was through his ballets. And so this book is a series of dances from the first uh, piece that he choreographed as a young teenager um, through to uh, the, the last ballet that he choreographed uh, just before he died. Um, and each poem, I guess, is um, takes cues from the choreography of that particular ballet um, and it interweaves it with uh, what was going on in his life at that point in time. But on this subject of truth, I guess, uh, in a way, it's a book about not necessarily George Balanchine, but more my truth of um, a series of research encounters that led me here. So maybe I'll just shut up and read some poems. Um, so there's different sections of his life. Just tell me when to... Stop talking. I think I'm at eight minutes. 
<laughs> so this is just before defecting. Um, and they were so starving, of course, at this point in time, um, 1924 in Russia. Uh, they had all this food on the boat and pigged out allergy. This is to Rachmaninoff's allergy for piano. Goodbye, St. Petersburg. Goodbye, Petrograd. Goodbye, hungry days and freezing nights. Farewell, mother, father, sister, brother. It will never be the same. We sail for Stettin as Soviet dancers, our steamship full of bread. We gorge and fill our pockets. Farewell, youth. We won't return. Berlin burns bright in the indigo evening, clean comfort and whipped cream, traffic and so many trees. We dance and eat in Rhineland resorts, leave a mild mark, keep moving. Shura is a barrel, a piano. Kola likes to nap and is unimpressed by riverside castles. Dmitriev can do only so much with those sawn-off fingers. He overestimates his value. We will run out of money. Tamara will sell her hair. London, Paris, we nibble cheese, play dominoes for distraction. Then, out of nowhere, telephone pour Monsieur Georges, c'est en bas. And that was Serge Diaghilev calling him, saying, come work for me. Um, one of the things that I love about George, everyone's quick to say, ah, all this bad stuff, five wives, la, la, la. Yes, that's true. However, there were some wonderful things. Um, and I think he, his flexibility was really uh, fantastic. Um, and so one of the first ballets he did for Diaghilev was this horrid little thing called Barabao. Um, and... Um, the dancers all had to wear these big um, pillows in their pants. And anyway, it was like a, yeah, I don't know. George wasn't pompous and was willing to fulfil assignments, even those that came with big busts and broad jokes, or wrapped in hokey-pokey coloured papers. A ballet is a ballet, says the boss. So long as Lafar, his lover for the time, escapes those fat, rude poses and false noses, to soar the backdrop, uh, to soar across the backdrop of Utrillo's rosy boulevard and cut a meddling flirt against the rhythm, the rhythms of the hidden chorus. Of course, the dance itself might be grotesque, slapstick a la cha Chaplin, caught on a fair French wind and blowing fresh breaths of garlic across the crowded laughing field. Success in Italy, Monte Carlo, but in London, the critics chant, Barabao, why won't you die? Um, so he goes to America. Um, and he did a lot of work for Broadway um, for money. So this is a co combination of about 15 works. Broadway. Successes and flops. On Broadway, George learns the basic challenge is to keep people awake. He embraces the concentrated genius of Fred Astaire, fiddles with the pleasures of a hoedown. 
Dramatic invention in footwork starts the motors on a shoulder-based airplane, and he says, that's right, bam. He earns huge sums and spends them all on fine champagne, grand pianos, and poker nights with the theatre crowd. Nothing but climaxes. At rehearsal, it's a different story. That travelling mind swivels satire through the big easy, taps out an upstate New York comedy of errors. Later, Grecian landscapes chart a solo fantasy of compositional brilliance. Remember Peter's surprisingly long dream sequence? It sparked a vogue, those irresistible cliches of excitement and terror. Always the dream is to get the girl, or to be wealthy and successful, or to develop a national music, or something about marital discord. I do know that George, like little Joe, is trapped at the crossroads of heaven and hell and needs to rise from a slumberous sentiment to stop being a fool in love, serenading her window, unshaven, and instead to pull his resources, 22 toothbrushes threaded on a string, and a foolproof affirmation to Zarina. You see, we'll be okay. How can you fail? And later, hello, I'm an angel. Hello, I'm a potato. Hello, Salvador. I've had another nightmare. And he used to call up Salvador Dali uh, with his nightmares to get him to interpret them. Um, so I might leave it at that. And That was Jessica Wilkinson, and you've been listening to the panel, The Texture of Truth. Our next speaker is Alison Miller. Alison Miller teaches writing and literature at Deakin University in Melbourne. Her writing has appeared in both national and international publications and includes three collections of prose poems, Dream Animals, Picadon with Cassandra Atherton and Phil Day, and 2019's Strange Creatures. Um, I would also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet. Um, this is a daunting audience. I'm so much more used to university students who are tapping away on Facebook and Instagram. In some instances, Netflix, whilst in the middle of a lecture, which is the ultimate, the ultimate act of multitasking and slightly grounding <laughs> as well. Um, talking of teaching, many years ago, I took a lecture on Kafka's The Metamorphosis. And I was obsessed with Kafka at the time, how someone could craft these beautifully creepy, haunting, abject narratives and make them so beautiful and so profound at the same time. And I read my students a quote from Kafka about his view of literature, and I'll read it to you. He says that we only ought to read the kind of books that wound or stab us. If the book we're reading doesn't wake us up with a blow to the head, what are we reading for? We need books that affect us like a disaster, that grieve us deeply, like the death of someone we loved more than ourselves, like being banished into forests far from everyone, like a suicide. Um, they were suitably appalled, um, this group of fresh 18-year-olds studying literature for the first time at tertiary level, this incredibly violent vision 
of what Kafka believed literature to do. And yet there's something quite appealing, I think, about that, this idea that connects with what Jen was discussing about understanding the complexities of the world and the darkness and the depths and the taboo, the horror that we don't like to confront. I'm a self-confessed lover of abject documentary series. Um, I love shows about... <laughs> polygamous marriages and serial killers and Dr. Pimple Popper and um, embarrassing bodies and these incredibly intimate, horrifying, terrible things that we don't like to admit to and yet other people are quite happy to be filmed in the midst of. Um, Dr. Pimple Popper is excellent, highly recommend it, much better than it sounds, just don't eat at the same time. Cassandra's quite a fan too, actually, of Dr. Pimple Popper. <laughs> the amazing things that emerge from people's bodies. Whenever I give one of my poems to my dad to read, he says, can't you write about something nice, something that I can give to other people and not feel <laughs> as though we have to explain it away somehow. But I'm obsessed with how we can use language and how we can use poetry in particular to express the ineffable. How do we look at the taboo? How do we confront the things we'd rather not acknowledge in the world, prefer not to see, prefer not to think about, and yet reveal so much about our humanity. It, it's all well and good reveling in a love poem or a love song uh, or a documentary that you know enables us to feel good about ourselves and our place in the world, but what about those things that do, in line with Kafka, shock us to our core, that make us feel uncomfortable, dirty, compromised, uncertain, maybe even terrified as well? And how do they help us reflect on our own capacity for horror? And I don't mean necessarily in a bodies in the freezer type way or having a large mass burst from your shoulder or a story about how you had something removed and discovered you were living with a twin the whole time. It doesn't need to be on that kind of scale, but um, the capacity for small horrors as well, the daily moments of objection, the the, the tiny ways in which we engage in behaviours that we'd rather not admit to ourselves um, and to the very at the very least not to other people. So I became adept at scanning new, newspapers and magazines and news headlines for things that we pass over quite quickly and it's amazing how every day in the Herald Sun and The Age and all of those other quality newspapers uh, there are those you know inches dedicated to the terrible things that people do and they are so horrific and yet so imaginative and so strange. And, and you have to wonder what they, how they emerged, how someone could think to do those things. Um, I became immersed, for example, in a case in Austria where um, a, a series of suitcases washed up on the shore of a lake. And within each suitcase was a different body part of a woman who'd been dismembered um, and her head... <laughs> So I shouldn't laugh, this is terrible. Um, <laughs> but if you play around in this territory for long enough, it does do something to you, I suspect. Um, the head of the woman had been wrapped and chained to the body of her husband who had then drowned himself. Where does that come from? What, what part of the human mind can conceive of that kind of thing? I don't know. Um, I, maybe I don't want to know, but I think maybe I do as well. Um, and at least how do we express something like that? Certainly the facts in a newspaper, they were just so blunt and so direct and, um, you know, you, you could not not stop and wonder at those things. So I am obviously interested in contemplating the taboo. Um, not very popular at family Christmas dinners. Uh, my nieces and nephews have been told not to ask Auntie Allison about what she might be writing about at the moment because it's probably not appropriate. Um, 
let's just watch a film instead. Um, <laughs> so I, I quite enjoy that sense of conflict and how we um, were taught for so long that language should express our best selves and, and we should craft it and we should use it carefully and um, with caution and with wariness maybe even. But then how can we apply that, that cautious use of language to expressing something that we'd rather not look to? So it is an understanding of the ways, I'm interested in understanding of the ways in which, uh, you know, literature is a kind of catastrophe, the way it can express the ineffable. Um, and I think by doing that, I mean, yeah, there's something macabre about it and, and, you know, maybe something quite masochistic in that pleasure of reading those things, but also understanding what's so alien and what's so strange and, um, you know, those things that you can't reject. You can't reject these human behaviours that seem so extreme to us and so unworldly that we can just say they're outliers and they have nothing to do with us and who we are and our place in the world. I, I just don't think that's true necessarily. So on that rather cheerful note, I have some poems to read that um, are all based on real events in the real world, happen to real people, some of them to myself, most of them not. Um, this is a poem called Kill Floor. Um, it's based on an incident. Uh, my partner, as a university student, spent some time working in an abattoir, um, as you do when you're 18, 19, and you need to save up to go to university. So, kill floor. That day, a kid runs loose, hooves clack clicking against the slick concrete. It falls, and the fat, white underbelly is stained with scarlet, hind legs spraddled, achingly wide. Bleach-wetted walls stream with the heat of newly stilled bodies on the belt. The air heaves with blood and ammonia. It bleats a horror cry, and in its milk-pale eyes there is you, an image of a rubber-clothed man, kneeling. Your throat is choked tight, and the room is a test, a locked box of quantum superposition. In the madness of the echo chamber, the kid butts against your arm, corn buds crusted with viscera and shit, its hot tongue flapping and bloated. You pull it to your chest, feel its wild heart thrash with your own. Its wet breath is hard against your cheek as you stand, count to ten, and walk towards the door. Uh, this next piece is called Planarian Worms. Under the floorboards in a womb space, there are four children, hunched and translucent like planarian worms, Trapped in the weight of the dark earth, they sing lullabies and recite fairy tales in the heavy air, always in half-breaths as they listen for the sound of movement on the stairs. The odd flicker of light speaks maybe of food or some new game to play, or those other things too large for words. Their mother-sister hums an old Austrian carol, remembering the voices of the choirs her children and siblings might never hear. Still, still, weiß Kindlin schlafen will. As she, as she sings, she thinks of her eldest, who has taken to plucking out her hair and shredding her dresses, stuffing the fabric into the toilet until its porcelain throat is choked. She cannot help her. Wenn wir einmal sterben müssen, wir, 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 wir rufen zu dir. People often get up and leave during family Christmas as well, so that seems very appropriate. <laughs> the next is based on a documentary series that was... Um, Fascinating. It was about a small town in America where uh, dozens of young girls suddenly became 
paralyzed and unable to move or were moving in quite jerky marionette type movements that they were unable to control. It was incredibly disturbing. They were basically unable to function. They couldn't study, they couldn't leave the house, they couldn't move, they couldn't do anything, um, you know, related to their normal lives. And they thought that it was about chemicals from local factories that had seeped into the water table and were slowly poisoning the people of this town, but they never proved it. They did get Erin Brockovich in on the case, though, which was quite exciting. Yeah, she's yeah, she's quite a woman. Anyway, this is called The Twelve Dancing Princesses. Their parents blamed a toxic conspiracy, something about chemicals creeping through the bedrock like a stain. Claimed it must be under the football field, poisons triggered by cheerleaders and runners punctuating the earth with the regularity of typewriters and birdsong. Experts held the mystery as far away as consonants, spitting out scripts for antibiotics and hysteria like seeds and broken teeth. On the television, the girls jerked as though possessed, necks and faces pulled hard into alien angles, voices annexed by unreal things. And the symptoms spread like a haunting, an enigma of muscle and some cerebral ghost that eluded x-rays and journalists and psychiatry. The small town, nervous of the water table and porous quarry rocks, shuttered down tight as an eyelid. And the girls, locked in their rooms and skins, searched night skies and the pattern of leaf falls for some hint of return. And curiously, they did return. They literally woke up eventually one day and the symptoms disappeared. It was incredibly strange and curious. The final of the horror poems, um, this one's called Bypass. The heart is the core, even though it is off-centre and so close to the throat. Its beating is a haunting, travelling the arterial lines into ears and mouths, awakening in the twitch of a bicep, that patient thrum in your gut. Yours was broken, not guitar string snap like a wailing country song, but a heaving grey slug choking against your chest and lungs. The surgeon made no promises, but like a good electrician, sought to tighten the loose connections. Your body was unzipped, ribs cracked wide like wings to frame the faulty organ, a parody of a memorial tattoo. Inside the wet purple space, doctors made note of the curious erosion of those tissues knitted by secrets and the compulsions of the living, worn away by decades of hard use. It takes five grafts to rebuild the pathways of blood and oxygen to keep the perpetual rhythm the sinoatrial node transmitting to the atria, to the atrioventricular, and so on. Biomechanics, the solution to it all. Later, fat-fingered and drug-woozy, you wandered the halls like a Christmas ghoul, wailing like a newborn as you prophesied the hopes of a new world. Thank you. Ali Kobiekerman's first collection, Little Bit Long Time, was written in the desert and launched her literary career in 2009. In 2013, Ali won the Kenneth Slessor Prize for Poetry and the Book of the Year in New South Wales for Ruby Moonlight, a massacre verse novel. In 2014, Ali was the first Indigenous Australian writer to attend the International Writing Program at the University of Iowa. In 2017, Ali received a Wyndham Campbell Award for Poetry from Yale University. Thank you. 
I too want to acknowledge the traditional custodians, the Ngunnawal people on this land, who are often referred to as traditional owners. But um, I can't wait till we own something. <laughs> Our wealth's been stolen. And I feel like we all remain colonised in this space and on this country because as traditional custodians, we're yet to really welcome you through traditional ceremony that's still missing. We want to see you and welcome you emerge through the smoke of our ceremonies, not us emerging through the smoke of our country burning and often our people burning on the pyre. We talk about atrocities that have happened overseas and um, uh, I want to share with Kai that um, along the east coast here there's two places where the, the gentry used to steal the babies and bury them up to their necks in the sand and play polo. The babies were still alive at the start of the game. This is why I think Australia doesn't want to talk about the massacres and the frontier wars. So they don't want to acknowledge that these horrors happened here. So my poetry comes from the ephemeral because nature and its people are my book. And sometimes we can be driving through country unknown to us and just burst into tears and we know that something horrible's happened here. We know that before we meet the people that can tell us that. In culture, not so long ago, when we were in control of the birthing and, and the welcoming of the children, the old people would know, even while that baby still had its birth blood, Oh, look, we got a little healer. Look, this one's a little dancer here. We got a little song man or woman here. We got a storyteller. And I think when my family met me, I met my family in the in in the um, in my thirties, and then I went out to the to the desert and was meeting my traditional family. And the old people kept me pretty close. I'm going to get emotional. Um, I think they recognised, yeah, this one, she tells the stories. But because our time was so short, they didn't really tell me that. And I learnt that, which through my research, I wrote this poem in 2011, it was published, it's called Nunkery. One of my uncles was a powerful traditional healer. Arms wrapped round cummy. Cummy's grandmother, smell the campfire hair, seven sisters dancing, Pallades at night, chanting and singing, laughing and joy. In the morning, big clean-up time, women scramble in Toyota dreaming, dust trails linger. The girl waits, signal from the ochre man, nunkery, nunkery, sickness is gone. You're good now, girl. Go get the world. I was standing in the doorway on the stage um, at Yale 
And I think I was the third one out. There was eight recipients of this wonderful prize. And I thought, shit, take your shoes off. I kicked my shoes off. And they were reading my bio. And I felt the breath of my uncle, who's long passed away, in my ear. And he said, you're good now, girl. Go get the world. And all I wanted to do was, fuck, is that what you meant? But as the door opened, I had to go out. I wanted to cry. I couldn't. I don't even know what I said. This is my research. This is Aboriginal poetry. This is if you're, the, if you're true to your line, our onus is always to look inside. That is the editing of poetry, is the living. And I've been forced to do that because for so long I was away. And I was pretty messy. I could probably take out six of you before you'd get me down. I was a very, very angry, out-of-control person because no one was mentoring my emotions. And then I met my family and they laughed and laughed. Anyone laugh at me before, I would react differently. But these were old people laughing and it took me a while to recognise they were laughing because they had the skills to heal me and they could recognise my damage and they were laughing because they knew it was temporary now. In Aboriginal uh, poetry, we really only own our story. And research is limited. Research is in the living because we're not supposed to talk about the dead. We've turned that page and every page has the same regard as the one coming and the one before. Elders, past, present and emerging. So in the course of that, I read... I wrote a few poems. It's a little bit of a journey again. So, um, wildflowers. Mallets pound fence posts in tune with the rifles to mask massacre sites. Cattle will graze, sheep hooves will scatter children's bones. Wildflowers will not grow where the bone powder lies. A lot of people say, yeah, Ellie, you don't write any funny poems. <laughs> this poem's hysterical around the campfire. Let's get married. She laughs as she stabs him in the shoulder. Sure thing, he laughs as they walk to the hospital, a half-worn sock stuffed in the knife hole. <coughs> the doctor casts glances over his glasses as he cleans and stitches the wound in disbelief. As they walk down to their river tree, he picks up a log, hitting her across the back. Laughing, she grabs it, wrestling it away, swinging it with all her might, snapping his forearm. Back at the hospital, the doctor peers over his glasses to stare at a love that runs deeper than any wound. So with them, and, um, you know, there's so much emphasis on on our actions without uh, recognition of why emotional um, ill health might exist. So, so many of our men, they're still building new jars to lock up our men, 
many of our um, men. And now uh, the uh, incarceration rate of Aboriginal women, I think in the last four years, has risen like 600%. Black deaths in custody. Despite the cost, a new jail has been built. It seems the incarceration, incarceration rates are trebling. I only came here in the role of a deaths in custody inspector. All the cells are stark and spotless. Blank screens watch from the corner. The officers have the highest technology. The faces of the staff all look the same. And when I walk down this wing and peer into this filthy room, the door slams behind me. The feeling in my heart is changing from a proud strength of duty to fear. All the stories I have ever heard stand silent in the space beside me. A coil of rope is being pushed under the door of this cell. Now, 20-odd years ago, we had the um, Royal Commission into Black Deaths in Custody and say there was like 135 recommendations. I think Australia implemented about seven. I share this not to ridicule, but it's sort of my plea for help. This is your government ruling the lives of my people, spending a lot of money on royal commissions that we need you to say, like, we, as taxpayers, you've invested in the royal commission. Let's do all the recommendations because now after 20 years, there's more people dying in prison than ever before. It's like, you're supposed to be good at money. It's not a really good investment, I don't think. So when they come out of jail, all of a sudden, there's mining everywhere. The land's been taken again. Mining. Grandmother wants to... Uh, granddaughter wants her to drive slowly so she can count the white posts along the highway. 56, 57, 58, 59, and oh, Nana, you're driving too fast, Nana. Nana keeps her eyes on the road ahead, checks the rearview mirror for mining trucks. 22, 23, 24, 25. Slow down, Nana. I can't count that fast. The old woman smiles at her granddaughter. The young girl smiles in her, at her nana. A mining truck slams into the slow-moving car. They count as road toll now. The trees on this country have memory. Science has proved it's fascinating, the science of trees. The trees don't forget. The trees are watching. The trees know. Remember every face that walks past. The trees know who love them. We're praying with the trees that they stay standing and the clearing stops. Even at this time with climate change, we're still allowing the government to knock down old forests. And now we're ridiculing protesters. You've broken your law. You've lifted native title to let Adani steal the water. He's not here for the coal. The heir told me that. He's not here for the coal because the coal mine doesn't make sense. We have to give him $4.4 billion in subsidy for the coal mine to go. Again, you've got the money. He's after the water. 
A girl watches a bead of sweat roll tracing the muscles on his arms as he lowers the freshly cut bark. Moist water provides a cushion. He turns to stare at her stillness. Her eyes remain above his head. The soft flesh of the tree expires. The scar bleeds on the trunk. Outside the smoky fire, she stands. He dries and shapes the fresh canoe. The structure forms to nature's laws, a new dais of, of voyage prepared. At midnight, they sail the river. She turns without causing a ripple, looking back along the darkness to the neon of the scar tree. It shines like a bended doorway. A light within beckons as if a sacred scar has fallen and a yearning will soon be done. I'll just finish on this last poem. It was originally called The Abyss of an Apology in Australia, but um, I've just decided to change it to traditional owners. Attracted to the neon light of an auction house, they stand in single file, the natives, selling their artefacts for food. One woman weeps, clutching a coolamon, etched with kangaroos and sturt desert pea, her grandmother carved from a red river gum. A girl pulls gemstones from her pockets, fossilised birds of ruby red garnets, containing the songs of the old. A young man holds a bundle of spears crafted by his grandfather before the missionaries taught him the economy of rifles. A boy offers a branch from the bow shelter under which his mothers were born when his family was housed in happiness. Another offers a stringless guitar his uncle had used to write the music for an award-winning song. An old man with long grey beard grips music boomerangs in each hand, knowing their silence will be forever. There is little reparation for food. There is no apology for the past. There is no apology for the past. And now, a panel discussion moderated by Cassandra Atherton. So I thought um, I'd just like to briefly turn back to the idea of genre and ask you all if you could each briefly say what you think poetry enables us to know and what you think it expresses that other forms of writing do not, given that we're here for poetry on the move. Um, so, Louise, can we start with you? It's probably easy to go in the same same direction? Yes, well, when I was talking to you earlier, Cassandra, um, I was talking about this work as... I don't actually... I didn't know what to call it initially. It wasn't... I call it writing. Um, friends who are much more lyric poets than I um, had endless discussions about what it was. But I was trying to bring together work that I'd done that was often very technical environmental stuff for a political purpose to integrate that into another form. 
um, because even though um, uh, I didn't, yeah, I didn't, I, I, I actually threw, po poetry just was pointless. So uh, I got to the stage where I didn't want to read it and I didn't want to write it because it wasn't enacting anything. Mm -hmm. But there was still a desire within me for that language. Mm -hmm. So this has been in like an ongoing work in progress <laughs> um, construction. And I think, po I don't call it poetry, I don't know what to call it, but poetics of some form, it can encapsulate something. Um, and, sorry, I've lost the question. Um, Just about perhaps what it can do as a poem or what it enables us. Yes, um, and I, I come back to that thing about it being dialogue. Like, I feel like that deeply in a, in a place that you actually have to do something. You cannot not do something. Like, that's why poetry is so inadequate, because what does it do? <laughs> but then, um, so there has, has to actually be um, activism as well. They go hand in hand, as I said earlier. Um, but the poetic is still, I still love language, and we can't live without music, so I still write. Yes. Um, so, um, because I write biographies um, and I don't write, I don't put poetic in the title, I just say it's a biography. One of the funniest reviews I ever got was um, a woman from America bought my book on Amazon and then wrote a review on Amazon and I only found that out because I was Googling myself. Um, <laughs> As you and, do. <laughs> and she wrote, beware, this is not a biography. <laughs> um, you know, poetry or whatever. She also reviewed a green hat. Um, anyway, so... <laughs> so you looked up her profile as well. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, um, so I, um, quite, I quite enjoy being cheeky with that and call my, prefer to call myself a biographer than a... A poet, which I also think is half being cheeky, half, um, you know, is totally valid. One of the things that interests me is um, readers and this kind of obsession with, um, with, with reading biographies, particularly like politicians have autobiographies come out or whatever and mm -hmm. people are keen to kind of go out and get those. And this sort of this idea that you can read all these facts and then know and have that character. I hold this, I know, I have, you know, I, I understand this person now, which I think is not um, really true. And um, so for me, um, that's what fascinates me about poetry and what's possible in poetry um, and why I just... Um, read out those quotes earlier, um, they're getting more towards, I think, um, what poetry can do in this space and the more inarticulable aspects of character um, and the emotional resonances that are, um, you know, perhaps more constitutive of character than pure facts and accuracies. Yeah. So you won't be writing um, 
Scott Morrison poetic <laughs> biography next. Biography next. Well, interestingly, um, <laughs> um, just on that po political question earlier. Yeah. Sorry, I won't hog the mic for too long. But I was thinking, and Paul Hetherington's question about um, whatever the question oh, was. Oh, Trump true. politicians. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And um, one of the rabbit authors for the little poet series, um, Dave Drayton, he wrote he did, a book called PMs, but it's poems, but the O and the E in brackets. And um, they were portraits of all the prime ministers up to um, the one before. Um, anyway, he's written ScoMo now. Um, but he, he wrote these little biographical portraits, but using only the letters in the prime minister's name and kind of so found out factual information and just channeled it through that extreme constraint. Mm -hmm. So they're very funny yeah, and very disturbing at the same time mm -hmm. and I think uh, is a really good approach to writing political poetry and yeah. getting a sort of yeah. subtle me message across. Yeah, I think it did. I'm and also about the absurdity of our politics. I was going to say it sends up the situation in a lovely way but equally has this kind of quite serious feeling about, about it. Alison. Um, I think it's a really difficult question. Thanks, Cassandra. It's yeah. <laughs> my job. I, do, I mean, on, on the one hand, my instinct is to say, well, no, poetry isn't doing anything. Um, I've just stuck the microphone to my tights. There we go. Oh, no. um, <laughs> <laughs> it isn't doing anything more or less special. I know, well, it was, it was not going to be a subtle kind of <laughs> disentangling. Um, okay. I've done it again. Oh, <laughs> okay, sorry. It shouldn't be. <laughs> this is such, you know, incredible technology. Um, so, yeah, my gut instinct is to say, well, no, what, what can poetry do that science fiction can't do or that a short story can't do or that the horror genre can't do? And why do we continually wrap ourselves up with arguing for the specialness of poetry and the uniqueness of the poet as a person? That is probably just me being argumentative and difficult. Well, no, we're though. all here. Yeah, and I know, <laughs> and, and receiving some interesting looks right now too, avoiding eye contact. But we don't turn to science fiction for weddings and funerals. We, we don't recite short stories at birthdays, we don't commemorate things with, you know, um, a snappy little story of, you know, childhood memoir or trauma or any of those things. We do. We turn again and again to poetry. And I think um, it is something about the way in which the language of poetry is so charged, so carefully chosen, so, you know, select, um, and the way in which it can pay attention to those um, small moments, the liminal spaces, the gaps in between, the ineffable, the things that are so difficult to be said, and know that your reader, or hope that your reader, is also doing that work yeah. as well, that they don't come to poetry for the whole answer, that they expect fragmentation, they expect those gaps, gaps and losses and absences, and so it's a, a joint venture of sorts, and I think poetry enables that much more than most other, other genres. genres. Yeah, great. Thank you. Try not to get it stuck. Ellie. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. I think it's an exciting um, time that um, poetry might be the one of the catalysts to um, turn the volume up mm -hmm. of the conversation that we're always trying to have, and um, and that. Um, sadly, I think the politicians are, are really yeah. failing. Yeah. And um, someone, you know, just mentioned the other day, we can never rely on the government again. The only changes are going to be if we do it ourselves. And I think that's why... Um, and that really resounded um, uh, strongly to me. Um, uh, I think sometimes when you hear the truth, you know it a little bit. 
And um, so, yes, we um, won't rely on the government for anything. Um, I was, you know, like uh, just talking to another award winner in the car and um, recently and we were having conversations about where we put some of our award money because we have a responsibility to share a little bit and um, and so we, you know, mm-hmm. we, we're doing that. Um, in um, all my books now, I'm going to put um, information uh, um, uh, about the um, how to support the grandmothers against removal Wonderful. Uh, because Wonderful. it's the women's um, movement to stop the removal of children and for for everything. Um, so poetry for me is um, becoming really quite practical. Yeah, and um, and I think. It's also that's the invitation to so many young people, Absolutely. Aboriginal and um, non-Aboriginal, um, and then they're in the room and they're having these, um, you know, sort of hearty and uh, and fairly honest um, conversations. Mm-hmm. And I think poetry brings us all into the room when we are, are we allow ourselves to be a little bit challenged. Yeah. And we are much more polite than Parliament time. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's a big tick for us. Um, me personally, I love poetry. Um, I guess I'm blessed in two educations. Um, I know I get sick if I'm uh, going back to the assimilation um, education, then I have to go to the desert and whatever, and the, that seesaw of my um, well-being yeah. um, lets me know. But I do enjoy the um, the luxury of reading um, books and looking at and learning about different forms of poetry. Yeah. I also enjoy the luxury of walking country and learning from that book as well. Beautiful. Just because I always wonder with a biography... You're dealing with facts and you're researching, but there has to be some... Well, I'm a big embellisher, I guess, so I'm wondering is there a point at which we have to stretch the truth to sort of tell the truth, I suppose? Um, I think that... um, And just to purely answer this in relation to biography, Mm. um, that, um, you know, it's it's not a recovery of a person... Um, or an echo of a person, it's um, it's just a series of relations in time, I guess. And um, and and I I am actually fascinated. I'm going to talk a bit about this in the paper on Monday um, uh, about um, uh, the world of the book beyond the publication and how the how future. Um, which is kind of impossible in our publishing world and mm. restrictions of, you know, and publishers not having any money or wanting to do this, but um, having different iterations of, say, this book. Um, and there's this fabulous, very cheeky, naughty, um, crude poet in Canada called Dennis Cooley who wrote this book called Bloody Jack. And it was about 800 pages long, but then the editors whittled it back to um, 200 pages and he kept sneaking into the office at night and sneaking pages back in. <laughs> and then kind of um, – and then in the new version of it, a new edition, he snuck in more poem and he would sort of surreptitiously sort of play around with this biography 
of a character. No, I'm going on a wild tangent away from that question. But, um, but you don't you don't ever seize in all of those iterations. He's acknowledging that you don't ever seize the character and know the character, like the he's in on the joke of poetry slash biography. It's that you can't ever um, retrieve pin them down. Yeah, pin it down. Um, and he and he, so he takes it to the extreme and he's very playful and it's very funny. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Does anyone else want to have a go at answering that? I think it's about process. I think if you started an art project, your perception of what you're going to create is the lie. And by the time you've <laughs> finished the creating of it, the process will let you know a little bit more of your, your, your truth. Fantastic truth you found about yourself in your work we go I think they should all have to answer that one I'll start with Louise <laughs> mine is that I would give this all up to have grown up with my family oh yeah of course it's very apparent it's in your poetry blessed journey mm -hmm. but the older I get um it's still not enough yeah yeah Yeah, I think mine, I don't know, because tomorrow I'll think something else. But um, part of it is, unfortunately, my writing's not going to change the world. Right. <laughs> Sorry, that, prob that probably needed more explanation, but we'll do that some other time. <laughs> oh, um, I realise that I really hate writing poetry. Um, <laughs> and... Um, and for me, my great love is um, is uh, archives, and being a poet in an archive is very different to being a biography in an archive, um, and that's yeah. Alison, um, <laughs> some I realise I think that um, sometimes you have to be unafraid to stare into the abyss, even if it looks back, as the quote goes. Another one of those dodgy quotes, um, and that it, it's. It's okay to tremble ground that maybe no one wants to step on as well, just to see what happens. Might be terrible, might be wonderful, might be nothing, but sometimes you have to go there anyway. You've been listening to Poetry on the Move with a panel from the 2019 Poetry on the Move Festival, The Texture of Truth. Thank you to our poets Louise Crisp, Jessica Wilkinson, Alison Miller and Ali Kobiekerman, and to moderator Cassandra Atherton. This podcast is made possible by IPSI, the International Poetry Studies Institute and the Centre for Creative and Cultural Research, the Faculty of Arts and Design at the University of Canberra. My name is Shane Strange. Thank you for listening.